The time is now. Hello everybody, Volume 2, Episode 34. This is Employment Law Now. I am Mike Schmidt, your host of this podcast. I'm also the Vice Chair of the Labor and Employment Department here at Cozen O'Connor, and I am so happy to be back. And I ain't missing you at all. Well, since you've been gone, oh Well, I hope you all had a terrific summer. Uh, I know I did. You may be wondering to yourselves, and maybe you've spent the entire summer thinking to yourselves, well, where has Mike been? Where has employment law now been? How am I supposed to be keeping abreast and keeping up to date with all the significant developments and cases in the labor and employment area? I haven't heard from you since right before the summer, at the end of May. Well, you'd be correct. However, unfortunately, we had all kinds of technical difficulties, even to the point where uh, an episode that I recorded, part two of our intended um, miniseries on marijuana, got deleted right after we had recorded it. It was terrific, but we're going to be re-recording it, uh, so we'll get that information to you. But the bottom line is that right before Memorial Day back in May, which frankly seems like it was uh, eons ago, um, we had all kinds of technical difficulties um, with getting this podcast going. Uh, and so mostly because of that, and then with summer schedules kicked in, the summer came and went, and here we are in September at the start of fall, back and better than ever. I hope you didn't miss me too much, um, but my promise to you is that hopefully the technical difficulties uh, are long gone, and uh, we will get back in the saddle here uh, and get back to providing you with the educational and somewhat entertaining labor and employment discussion that you have come to expect and love from those of us here at ELN. So what I wanted to do now that we are back, it is September 2018, is I thought I would just give you a list, uh, my top 10 list, if you will, of summer happenings, things that you might have missed without me being able to whisper into your ear, um, the things that happened over this past summer of 2018, um, sort of the top 10 stories, top 10 developments uh, that have happened over this past summer. And um, in the next few months, and certainly uh, as we get closer to 2019, we'll spend a little bit more time in future episodes perhaps uh, exploring some of these issues. But let's get right to it. Number one. It's an issue that's somewhat fascinating to me because I talk about very frequently how as we are in 2018 and will be moving past 2018, we are starting to hear about all kinds of new creative discrimination and workplace-related claims. 
And this new case that was filed uh, in August 2018, this past August, um, in the Southern District of New York Federal Court, and for those keeping score at home, the case name is Castillo versus Sunlight Management Corp., again in the Southern District of New York. Uh, it's a, a real interesting issue dealing with, and get this new protected class that's alleged, the metabolically disabled individuals, metabolically disabled individuals. Very often you will see signs on the side of restaurants and maybe you'll even see the wording on the menus saying, no outside food or drink is allowed, right? And you're a little frustrated. Maybe you're going with a friend to some restaurant and you don't feel like eating what that restaurant is serving, so you bring in your own food and you get a little frustrated because the sign says you can't do it. Well, now comes the lawsuit on behalf of the metabolically challenged. Here, according to this lawsuit, the defendants denied the plaintiff and other metabolically disabled customers the full and equal access to the goods, services, and facilities of this particular theater. So what the allegation is, is that the eating constrained invitees, again, the eating constrained invitees, who were not allowed to bring outside food while attending events at this particular Broadway theater in New York were somehow discriminated against um, under the ADA. So we will certainly follow this interesting case and these interesting allegations. The takeaway here again is don't just think that we're going back decades with the same old, same old, the same discrimination, the same harassment kind of claims. As times are changing, the workforce is changing, the workplace is changing, new claims are arising, and folks are becoming ever more creative in the kinds of allegations that they are bringing um, under these employment statutes. Summer happening number two. I am sure you all read at some point over the summer how Amorosa secretly recorded, allegedly, um, President Trump and I guess some other folks in the White House administration without their knowledge. And so it made me think about this notion of employees recording various workplace conduct, particularly when employers don't know about it. And what are some of the issues that arise there? Well, um, why would employees want to be recording what goes on in the workplace sometimes? Maybe they are trying to record harassing or discriminatory conduct to uh, use as Exhibit A and Exhibit B in their lawsuit. Um, maybe they are trying to record some sort of whistleblower activity um, to give support to some allegation uh, that the employee is making that fraudulent or illegal activity has taken place. And what's really interesting, I guess, here is that they're not coming in, obviously, with boom mics um, and a whole camera crew to do the recording. They're using their smartphones. In some instances, they're using smart pens and other types of devices that the employer doesn't know exist and the employer doesn't even know uh, that they're being recorded. Um, but there are two real big concerns before you as the employer uh, start making policies and start taking disciplinary action against employees who do record uh, workplace conduct. The first has to do with your jurisdiction's consent law. 
maybe you've heard about these consent laws, but what they generally are is they tell you in your particular jurisdiction whether you are a one-party consent jurisdiction or an all-party consent jurisdiction. I don't like using the term one-party or two-party because two parties suggest that as long as you have two parties to a multiple-party conversation, that might be okay under those laws. So I would rather um, use the terms one-party or all-party. So, for example, under federal law, uh, there's only a requirement that one party to the conversation consent to a recording taking place. With regard to the states on the state level, because you've heard me say so many times, don't just consider federal law, but you've got to look at state and local law on these employment law issues as well, um, you sort of have a mixed bag. Um, 38 of the states, plus the District of Columbia, are one-party consent states which means that as long as only one party to the conversation consents and has knowledge about the recording, the recording's okay. So I can come into your office if I'm an employee in those jurisdictions, and as long as I'm the one making the recording and as long as I'm party to the conversation, I can make a recording without any problem. Eleven of the states are all-party states, which means every single party to the conversation must consent uh, to the recording. Uh, Nevada is uh, one state that's a little bit of a mixed bag. It does have a statute um, that seems to suggest it's a one-party state. However, the Supreme Court uh, of Nevada, I think, recently um, raised a question with that and seems to suggest that, no, the Nevada law on this issue is that all parties um, are required to consent. But the point is, before you are an employee uh, looking to record workplace conduct, or on the other hand, before you are a company, um, looking to prohibit uh, employees from doing so, you sh really should look at what the laws are in your particular jurisdiction. It gets a little funky as well when you've got a conversation going on with multiple people from multiple jurisdictions, right? You could have somebody in New York on the phone with somebody in Illinois, with someone else in San Diego, and someone else in Dallas. So uh, it becomes an issue, and I'm not here to give you all the answers and tell you what uh, all of these jurisdictions provide and don't provide. I'm here to raise the flag for you so that you know about this issue uh, if it ever comes up. The second concern in this area that you really should be thinking about as well is the NLRB, right? Remember them, the National Labor Relations Board? I hope you haven't forgotten them simply because we've been off all summer. Um, but one of the issues that the NLRB has certainly raised over the last few years uh, are what re is referred to as no recording rules. They've had an issue. The board has had an issue with employers who have had blanket prohibitions in their handbooks or policy manuals blanket prohibitions against employees recording conduct that has taken place in the workplace. Um, and for the last couple of years, particularly uh, under the Obama administration, those blanket prohibitions um, were a no-no, and the NLRB was uh, having all kinds of trouble with companies who had those policies. Interestingly, that tide has changed. I'm going to get into that in a little bit, um, but at least for purposes of these no recording rules, Peter Robb, the NLRB's general counsel, recently stated in a June 6th memo over the summer that no recording rules now will generally be deemed to be okay. They will not be deemed generally to be a violation under the National Labor Relations Act, except in some cases, such as, for example, if you're recording discussions about the terms and conditions of work. 
if you're looking to um, record and document unsafe conditions or record picketing that is going on, potential unionizing going on, um, in those cases you can't prevent employees from recording, but otherwise the NLRB seems to be shifting its position and now suggesting that no recording rules except in those exempted areas um, are going to be okay. Summer happening number three, anti-non-competes. Anti-non-competes. We continue to see across this country all kinds of state and local governments getting into the business of restricting when companies can enter into restrictive covenants such as non-competes and even non-solicitation agreements. We've had some more action on the state front uh, over the summer, particularly with Massachusetts, where Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker uh, just signed into law um, a law that requires employers with non-compete agreements to continue paying employees after they left the company for the entire restrictive period. In some respects, that makes sense, right? Um, you can't be having an employee stay on the sidelines and not earn a living and not go to work. Um, if you're not going to be paying that employee, how, how are they going to make a living, earn a living for their families? So one of the things in this new law uh, is that for the entire restrictive period, you need to continue paying that employee. The new law also has some other provisions which we're seeing uh, in other states' new laws as well, such as limiting any restrictive covenants, presumptively to one year, um, prohibiting outright any non-compete agreements for low-wage workers, and also those who were terminated by the company without cause. So Massachusetts may just be the latest example of it, but keep your eye on uh, all of the other states and uh, local municipalities if they have not yet enacted some type of restrictive covenant or non-compete legislation, um, because it's likely that they will as this trend continues across the country. Summer happening number four. The continued intersection of social media and employment law, I have gone to the hilltops and I have screamed at the top of my voice that social media has not created new causes of action, new workplace claims. What it has done is introduced a new platform from which the traditional employment law claims need to be addressed and analyzed. And even though we had a much more pro-employer, pro-business, arguably, uh, NLRB, certainly uh, since uh, the Trump administration came to Washington, there are cer certain circumstances where employers still apparently can cross the line. And so, as an example, just this past summer, on July 19th of 2018, uh, the board issued a decision in a case called uh, Northwest Rural Electric Cooperative that I think is worth talking about very briefly. Here you had an individual lineman for an Iowa electrical utility. Part of his job involved using GPS to decide where electric poles should be placed, and he was very concerned, particularly concerned about safety issues in the industry, um, both for himself and other linemen as well. And um, how did he express this concern? Well, he used one of probably a hundred online forums that employees and people in various industries use to express their concerns. The name of this online forum was called Line Junk. Uh, and it's apparently used by linemen and other electrical workers. It actually also apparently has uh, over 65,000 likes on Facebook. 
Here you had this individual lineman post a comment um, about a safety-related conversation dealing with the number of workers uh, that were assigned to a particular area. Some co-workers of his um, objected to his comments and others uh, agreed with the comments. Um, ultimately, about a week after posting his particular comment, uh, his company fired him. Well, he, as you would expect, filed a complaint with the NLRB, uh, and the administrative law judge determined that he did engage in protected concerted activity, and he was discharged unlawfully because of engaging in that protected concerted activity, the activity being posting something uh, on this online forum uh, that was joined in by co-workers and other folks. And what's interesting here is that the post uh, I believe had nothing to do with his actual employer, but it had uh, everything to do with the industry generally um, and safety and work conditions generally. And because of that, um, the NLRB still determined, still this pro-employer, pro-business arguably, NLRB still determined that the employer um, went over the line, crossed the line in firing him because of his online forum posts. Summer happening number five. We're halfway there, and it's only been about 16 minutes. And I love this one. The question is, can an employer tell its employees what they can and cannot eat? Yes, you heard me right. Can an employer tell its employees what they can and cannot eat? This issue was addressed uh, in a great alert by one of my colleagues here at Cozen, Dave Barron, uh, and I find this fascinating too. So uh, a shared workspa uh, workspace startup called WeWork um, announced over the summer this company-wide ban on eating meat. Company-wide ban on eating meat. Um, you weren't going to be disciplined or terminated if you ate meat on your own time. Um, but the company was no longer going to serve meat at company events. And, and, and here's really, I think, the critical part. The company said it would no longer reimburse employees for meals that include meat of any type. Uh, first of all, for those who know me, uh, I don't know that I'd survive at this company. Um, but bigger picture, uh, it raises an interesting issue. On, on the one hand, can't a company, can an employer decide what to do with its own funds, with its own company funds, if it doesn't want to reimburse people for eating meat? Um, shouldn't it be allowed to do that? Well, on the other hand, and like we always say in employment law, uh, employment law has multiple hands. On the other hand, some states like California, for example, require by statute employers to reimburse employees for expenses incurred in part of their duties. It's not discretionary. It doesn't give employers um, the leave to decide what it's going to reimburse or not. The requirement is that employers reimburse employees for expenses incurred in the performance of the duties. So I'm sure you can come up with a fact pattern to test this concept. What happens if the employee takes out a customer and the customer orders a big juicy fat cheeseburger? Are you telling me that the company is not going to reimburse that business meal because the customer ate meat? However, the employee was arguably incurring this expense as part of his or her duties. What if the employee has some religious objection to a vegetarian or a vegan diet? So 
takeaway here, I think, is it's certainly okay to want to promote wellness and healthy lifestyles and to do things and take initiatives as a company to promote those kinds of things. Um, but do consider, like everything else that you're doing, fortunately or unfortunately, do consider the legal issues with some sort of initiative like this as well. Um, it'll be interesting to watch how this plays out in the news too. Summer happening number six. We continue to see reactions pouring in to the Me Too era. All kinds of initiatives are taking place. All kinds of new laws are being enacted. In New York, for example, there have been all kinds of new requirements that are starting in 2018 and will be starting in 2019. Um, as New York City as well as New York State continues to go its own place, uh, its own way on workplace issues, imposing higher requirements on employers than what may be required by federal law, and also opening additional opportunities for employees to pursue claims if those requirements are not followed. So, just by way of some example, by September sixth, uh, four days ago from when I'm recording this. All New York City employers were required to display a new poster that was designed by the New York City Commission on Human Rights, as well as provide employees an information sheet at the time of hire that addresses the subject of sexual harassment. By October 9, 2018, New York State employers must provide employees with a written sexual harassment prevention policy against harassment. That also includes a standard complaint form that employers can but are not required to use. Also by October 9, 2018, there is an annual training requirement of all employees in New York State. Although the training has to be interactive, whatever that term means, it doesn't necessarily uh, have to involve a live or an in-person instructor. Uh, the employers can provide training through computer or online instruction as well as by audio-visual materials, but there are specific requirements contained in the law that must be included as part of this annual training requirement that employers uh, in New York must engage in starting October 9th. And New York City, as of April 1st of next year, April 1st of 2019, there are additional training requirements uh, that kick in. Uh, and so employers are going to be required to develop certain programs that include very specific elements that the New York City Council um, has deemed to be appropriate and actually necessary for uh, New York City sexual harassment trainings. So that's just an example. But it's one of many across the country where we are starting to see and continuing to see, I should say, all kinds of initiatives from courts, from legislatures, um, reacting to this Me Too movement uh, that continues to get steam, uh, gain steam, uh, as we uh, start to inch closer to the end of 2018. From a judicial standpoint, uh, the Me Too movement has not gone unnoticed as well. Over the summer, on July 3rd of 2018, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, and if you're keeping score at home, the name of the case is Minarski versus Susquehanna County. Uh, in this opinion, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals determined that an employee's failure to report sexual harassment over a period of several years did not preclude that employee from being able to go to trial on harassment claims. Now, you know, as I suspect, that very often 
employers will rely on a defense that says, well, we were never notified about this because the employee never complained. We have all of these complaint procedures, we have these processes in place, but the employee never bothered to complain. And in some circumstances, that might be a defense. Here, the Court of Appeals sort of suggested that that might not be so easy to rely on as a defense. In fact, the court in its decision expressly noted the national news about people's reluctance to report sexual misconduct. And because of that reluctance, maybe, maybe it made it reasonable for this individual in this case to not report the sexual harassment if she feared a possible consequence of doing so. So it's going to be interesting to see how that case plays out. It wasn't a determination on the merits of that kind of defense, but what it was was a decision that said, hey, we're not going to dismiss this out of, uh, as a matter of law because we're going to let a jury, uh, we're going to let a finder of fact at trial determine this defense and what was reasonable or not when it came to a lack of reporting. We'll continue to follow that case, and we'll also continue to see whether other cases around the country, uh, federal or state, um, seem to take that bait and follow that reasoning. Summer happening number seven, and this is an example of something that I talk about all the time, a text gone viral, and it shows how important it is to train your supervisors, train your managers, on the notion that even informal modes of communication like email, still, like texts, like direct messaging, must be taken seriously and must be drafted professionally. And also the notion that delete does not mean delete. In this particular case over the summer, many of you uh, may have read this or heard about this, a mom worked at a gas station and asked for some time off from work because her son was on life support. Well, the manager responded to her text asking for time off by saying, quote, if you can't come to work, that's you quitting, end quote. And it arguably got worse. Allegedly, there was a follow-up text which said, quote, uh, from the manager to the employee, quote, there's no reason you can't work and I will not tolerate drama. Well, Tens of thousands of shares later, as that got posted through all kinds of social media outlets, and barely 24 hours later, that manager was fired, and the company went out of its way to assure the employee that her job was safe and to take whatever time off she needed. Well, that just goes to show you, it's another example of you can train all you want, you can talk all you want to your C-suite executives, even to your human resources professionals, your in-house counsel. You can tell them all you want about what the laws are, how we need to be culturally sensitive, how we need to be careful about what we put in writing, whether it's formal writing or informal um, electronic communications. You can tell those people all you want, but if you're not training the folks who are in the trenches with the employees on a day-to-day -day basis, the line managers, the direct supervisors, well, you're not doing all that you can to make sure that your workplace has the kind of conduct that you deem appropriate and that the law deems appropriate. It is critical 
not to just have policies in place that people stick in a drawer or just can find on an intranet. You really need to do the best you can to train your supervisors and your managers, the people who are dealing with your employees on a day-to-day -day basis. Make sure they understand what's appropriate and what's not appropriate uh, in 2018. Summer happening number eight. The United States Department of Labor uh, has been busy at work on uh, FMLA model forms, uh, and they have posted new model FMLA notices and medical certification forms that you as employers uh, can download and use. Now, I'm not suggesting, and I want to be careful here, because so many people, and, and I'm going to be the last person, even though this is what I do for a living, um, I tell clients all the time, there are circumstances when you need to call me or need to call a lawyer, and there are certainly circumstances when you don't. Uh, and the good folks in-house, the HR folks at your company, um, are able to and should be able to handle certain situations. Um, but the FMLA issue may be one that you want to navigate carefully. So I'm certainly not suggesting that let's just rely on forms and rely on things that we can find and download on the internet. I'm not suggesting that no legal acumen is needed when it comes to navigating uh, rights and processes under the FMLA, but hey, why not take advantage of the Department of Labor's forms to at least show that you're doing those right? Um, the old forms that were used um, weren't really much different substantively, but they did have an expiration date that has now just passed uh, this summer. The new forms that the Department of Labor has posted uh, are good for three more years with a stated expiration date, a new expiration date uh, in the summer of 2021. So check out the United States Department of Labor's new forms uh, and think about how you can integrate those into your existing processes or think about if you don't have existing processes and you haven't been sure uh, of the forms and, and even the process that needs to be um, uh, perfected under the FMLA, if you're covered by the FMLA, that's something that you should be given some thought to. Summer happening number nine. Uh, remember the current uh, United States Department of Labor, as long as we're talking about uh, the U.S. Department of Labor, they reinstituted a policy earlier this year in 2018 to go back to proceeding with issuing opinion letters that employees, employers, and other people can rely on. Uh, remember, the Obama administration, Department of Labor, went away from that long-standing practice and really went away from issuing opinion letters. And opinion letters are great because they are publicly available. Uh, employers, even employees if they want, and certainly those advising both sides to the relationship, uh, can simply go and research a particular issue and see what the opinion uh, has been in the past of the Department of Labor on that particular issue. Well, uh, this new administration's Department of Labor has brought the practice back and has advised that they are going to go back to issuing opinion letters on uh, matters of significance, matters of interest to uh, companies and employees. And right before Labor Day last week, uh, or two weeks ago, the Department of Labor issued four new opinion letters on various topics under the FLSA, the Fair Labor Standards Act, uh, that may be of interest to some or all of you. The first, the question was whether time spent by employees voluntarily attending benefit fairs and undertaking wellness activities, whether that is compensable time. Well, the Department of Labor issued uh, an opinion stating no, it is not. The second 
opinion letter just released asked whether commission sales employee I'm sorry, whether the commission sales employee overtime exemption applied to a sales force that sells an internet payment software platform. And the Department of Labor said yes, under the facts given and the facts relied on for issuing the opinion letter, yes, that overtime exemption would apply to that company's um, sales force. The third uh, new opinion letter asked whether members of a nonprofit who served as credentialing examination graders for just one to two weeks per year but were unpaid could be treated as volunteers. The Department of Labor said yes, under the facts given and relied on, yes, they could be considered volunteers. And if that's an issue that comes up or sounds like an issue that sounds like something that may come up, um, check out that opinion letter or reach out to me and I'm happy to provide a copy to you. Uh, and the fourth new opinion letter that was just issued right before Labor Day, um, and this was, uh, I think, an interesting one, whether the overtime exemption for employees at a movie theater establishment uh, applies to employees who were working at dining services at that movie theater location when the dining services was not an independently operated restaurant but was a restaurant that was um, operated solely in conjunction with the movie theater and accessible only within the movie theater. The Department of Labor said yes under the facts given and relied on that overtime exemption would apply. So there are two takeaways, I think, to this development and these new opinion letters that were just issued, and I think we're going to certainly continue to see new opinion letters being issued by the Department of Labor. Um, first, and this is real important to understand, uh, these opinion letters are still very fact and very case-specific, uh, as you will see if you looked at any of them, um, but they are good to provide guidance and to give you an opportunity to say, hey, I've got similar, if not the same, facts I can rely on this and perhaps use it as a defense uh, in a litigation that I relied on it. Um, or my facts that I have in my particular circumstances are a little bit different. Should I, should I not rely on it? Maybe I should reach out to the Department of Labor um, and test my somewhat different set of facts against these principles. Um, but as I said, they're good to provide guidance, uh, and I think it's a good thing, a positive thing, that the Department of Labor is going back to this uh, process of um, issuing opinion letters. The second takeaway here, and I think most people, uh, at least in the academia world, would think that this is um, such a fascinating takeaway, that this was really the first uh, time that the Department of Labor, in an opinion letter, uh, in an opinion letter acknowledged the recent game-changing decision from the United States Supreme Court that I talked about right before the summer. Remember, I told you that history has been that all of these overtime exemptions were going to be narrowly construed. The standard was there is a narrow construction for any of these overtime exemptions, and that had a significant impact on whether employees successfully uh, challenged a misclassification, and it had a large impact on how jury trials were presented. Um, when jurors were told what the elements of the claims were of the overtime exemptions, what those were, and whose burden it was to prove. And you'll remember that the United States Supreme Court very recently changed that standard, going from a narrow construction for overtime exemptions to a fair reading, a fair reading construction, so that we now have to give these overtime exemptions a fair reading, what is reasonable, what is practical. 
I believe it's a game changer when it comes to these overtime exemptions. And the opinion letter, uh, it happened to be the Commission Sales Employee Overtime Exemption opinion letter that was just issued right before Labor Day, was the first DOL opinion letter to acknowledge that Supreme Court recent decision going from a narrow construction to a fair reading. I think it's a game changer in this area, and it's worth uh, continuing to watch. And finally, summer of 2018 happening number 10, maybe this is a game changer too, because when it comes to handbooks and workplace policies, the National Labor Relations Board, the NLRB, has made it a nightmare for companies. On top of that, we haven't just been grappling with federal law, but as I continue to say, state and local governments are dealing with all kinds of employer-employee issues. Paid sick leave laws, paid family leave laws, ban the box, and other hiring and other application process no-nos. And the NLRB on top of that, particularly through the Obama administration, has basically had basically come out and told employers, you can't say in your handbooks, in your policies, what companies have been saying for 10, 20, 50 years. Well, I referred at the beginning of this episode to uh, General Counsel Rob's June 6th memo, and um, this may be a game changer in this area as well, because at least on the NLRB front, uh, General Counsel Rob's June 6th memo specifically provided new guidance on handbook rules, and it was the first time since the NLRB's 2017 decision established a whole new standard for how the NLRB is going to be looking at workplace rules promulgated by employers. The new standard focused more and focuses more on a balancing between, on the one hand, the negative impact um, on the employee, and on the other hand, the rule's connection to a company's right to maintain discipline and maintain productivity. So, according to this June 6th memo, civility and no disparaging rules may be okay now in some circumstances. As I touched on a few moments ago, no photography and no recording rules may be okay in some circumstances. Blanket prohibitions of the use of company logos, for example, may be okay in certain circumstances. And the June 6th memo goes through several others. Um, you can get it on the internet, certainly, but feel free to reach out to me, and I'm happy to send you a copy. Uh, but there is a takeaway here. There is a takeaway, and I don't want you to get too giddy by this June 6th memo. The question I would ask for you is, why do you want to go back to arguably vague, overbroad, and undefined terms in your policy manuals? It's sort of like, if I'm going to create an analogy here, it's sort of like doing a whole cleaning of your office or a whole cleaning of your house, only to find that the move that you were intending to make uh, got canceled. Well, you did benefit from the cleaning, right? Even though you may not be moving your office, you may not be moving your house, you did benefit from the cleaning. And I think that this is a similar kind of... I know some of you are shaking your head that, Mike, that was the dumbest thing I ever heard, but I don't think it really was. I think there is an analogy to be made here because to the extent that the uh, NLRB over the Trump administration... I'm sorry, of the Obama administration forced you to do a cleaning of your handbooks, a cleaning of your workplace policies so that you were using more defined terms, you were being more specific, more narrowly tailored to really look at what business interests you were trying to protect in your policies, that's a good thing. 
So if the NLRB and general counsel Rob now comes out in 2018 and states, you know, going forward, we're going to relax uh, some of our uh, enforcement proceedings. We're not going to go as crazy and go after employers as much on uh, some of their policies. Even with that announcement, it's still a good thing that hopefully you took the time and made the effort to clean up your handbooks, clean up your manuals and workplace policies. Because at the end of the day, the goal is not to be as overbroad as possible. The goal is to protect your valuable business interests and create policies that accomplish that. So those are 10 things that you might have missed as you hopefully had a great summer of 2018. Fall is upon us now, and for those like me who hate humidity but love football on TV, uh, it's a great thing. And for those like me who love the law, <laughs> it is great to be back and great to be settled back uh, into employment law now here, uh, back to our twice-a-month release of new episodes. I really appreciate all of you sticking with us, and I'm sorry that we weren't able to give you anything really over the summer, but I promise not to disappoint as we continue. We are going to have some tremendous guests, both from my firm, Cozen O'Connor, uh, as well as folks from uh, the outside world talking about issues that are important to you and your company. Um, so continue to stick with us, and we will continue to inform uh, and entertain at the same time. So until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive. Every time I think of you, I always catch my breath. And I'm still standing here. And you're miles away And I'm wondering why you left And there's a storm that's raging Through my frozen heart tonight I see your name in certain circles And it always makes me smile I spend my time Thinking about you And it's almost Driving me wild But it's my heart That's breaking Down this long Distance line Tonight And I ain't missing you at all Well since you've been Gone Oh wait I 